the quantum mechanics. Yes, we are the quantum mechanics, the podcast for the believers, the doubters, and everyone in between. Uh, welcome to winter. It's cold. It is cold, although a bit of a mild spell coming up, apparently. Nice. Yeah, so it's uh, it's been been unseasonably warm but yeah i've been feeling it and uh, our little studio we haven't really put any radiators on so we are slightly freezing but apparently it makes your brain better if it's cold right <laughs> stay tuned for an excellent episode <laughs> <laughs> uh anything interesting happened to you paranormal wise last week no nothing that um nothing that i can put my finger on um no <laughs> is the simple answer to that question. I'm just having to think back. No jotty type behaviour. Nothing weird. No, nothing at all. Well, I did have something weird happen, Ooh. but it might just be electronics. I'm not sure. Oh, tell. Um, came down the other morning, can't remember what it was, Wednesday, I think, and all the windows on our car were down and the Ooh. doors were wide open. Um, but the alarm hadn't been set off. Um... No sign of temporary, no nothing. Um, very, very peculiar, very weird. You've had some weird stuff with cars before, right? Yeah, yeah, when we were doing the standing stones, the um, the car opened itself. Same car or...? Same car, yeah, yeah. yeah. I wonder whether... Um, it's more likely a computer glitch, although a computer glitch doesn't open the car door, so... That's weird. It is quite odd. I felt a bit creepy about it. <laughs> I love the fact it's either some paranormal phenomena or really bad electrics. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's really hard to tell the difference sometimes. Um, I, I suspect uh, it was, I don't know, I wonder whether someone was trying to break into it, but as I say, the alarm yeah. didn't go off. Nothing taken? Nothing taken, no. No, and there's a few pound coins in the middle um, of the sort of glove box area, and they're all there, so... Ooh, Very weird. peculiar mystery. Ooh, you have to keep an eye on that. Yeah, yeah. So, I don't know. Maybe my car's haunted. Maybe it is haunted. Well, um, I'm trying to think of how I link into the episode from that. <laughs> Finding a link between that and what I'm going to talk about would be a huge leap. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Which is going to be a bit of the theme of this episode because I want to talk about a I don't know what you call it an entity uh, a human maybe a devil uh, known as Spring-Heeled Jack this is absolutely one of my favorites yes well I, I think we've talked about it on the podcast before how certainly I am and I think you are to a degree a kind of a bit obsessed with that Victorian era, horror, mm -hmm. ghost stories, paranormal tales. Very much. And I was thinking about where I get that from. And I think I'm going to have to blame my grandmother for that, who's sadly no longer with us. But uh, not that she was around in the Victorian era, I just want to make that clear. But we used to watch old horror movies together. I don't know if you remember this, Ben, but... When we were kids, or kind of, I guess, on that cusp of becoming teenagers, the BBC, I think on a Saturday night or a Friday night, can't remember which, used to pay, play a horror double bill. Yeah, I remember this, yeah. And usually one of the movies would be a kind of old classic black and white kind of Boris Karloff. I always remember there was one called The Hand. I don't know if you oh, ever yeah, saw I remember that, The Hand, yeah. Which yeah. I'm sure would not stand up now, but I remember being quite scared as a kid mm. as this black and white hand kind of traipsed around a kind of gothic 
manner <laughs> very slowly but scaring everyone i remember that one but they also used to do a lot of hammer horror films which you know would be they always were kind of either egyptian they'd be the vampire type werewolfy ones oh yeah yeah but the ones i loved the most were the victorian or seemingly victorian set ghost stories mm-hmm. and paranormal tales because mm. you'd have those foggy london streets wouldn't you you'd have people running around in capes invariably oh yeah uh, and, and, and a scream a scream mysterious horse-drawn carriages all that kind of stuff um so i think that's where i get my obsession with that victorian era uh paranormal from and we have featured it on the podcast before uh we did a jack the ripper well we did an episode on police psychics which we featured a jack the ripper story about a psychic who was well either involved or depending on your point of view not involved in the ripper case but um today i want to focus on another victorian named jack uh that predates jack the ripper by i think about 50 50 maybe 60 years and that's the entity known as spring-heeled jack and what is fascinating about the case of Springhill Jack is not the mul- not just the multiple reports of the entity, but the theories that surround them. So some say Springhill Jack was just a man wreaking terror on the streets of Victorian London. Some say that he was a cryptid. Yeah, yeah, I've heard that. Yeah. Other others theories say he was an escaped zoo animal, which I'll get <laughs> onto. Even some claim he was an alien visiting earth yeah yeah explaining why his appearance was so strange so bizarre yeah yeah. well we're going to look at all of those theories in the episode i'm going to use um a number of sources to explore the story of spring hill jack there's many newspaper newspaper accounts at the time i've managed to dig out uh, a really interesting original newspaper article which i'll come on to uh, also featuring some stuff from Jamie Clark's Haunted Wandsworth book and Stand and Deliver by Elizabeth Villiers, uh, among others. But as a way of a basic introduction, I am going to quote from an academic study that I found on Spring Hill Jack. It's funny what you can find in academic works, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. This isn't another one by a TV company, is it? No, no. This <laughs> this is a genuine peer-reviewed oh, paper. Oh, wow. Okay. Uh, it's by J.S. Mackey from the University of Northampton. I love this. It was published in the Journal of Contemporary Gothic Studies. (laughs) I didn't know there was such a thing. There is a journal for everything. Wow. It's published in December 2016. Mackie writes, In 1837, there emerged a character on the streets and open spaces in and around London who established a reputation for terrifying pranks and assaults on women. Victorian society quickly put a name to their fears of this phantom attacker, Spring-Heeled Jack. Reports of incidents involving Jack continued around England for 67 years. The labyrinth and claustrophobic streets, thick with London fog and shadows cast by gas street lamps, made the perfect Gothic setting for Jack's antics and became the subject of plays and serial novels in the infamous Penny Dreadful newspapers. Mm, mm. Now I'm going to come on to, because I, I found some facts out about Penny Dreadfuls, which I'll come on to later, which really surprised me. Um, but for those who don't know, Penny Dreadfuls were 
a kind of published weekly. I get what well, I'm trying to think of a modern day equivalent, a bit National Inquiry, I guess, because they they had some foundation in truth, but they were largely fiction, a bit creepy pastry. Comic strips in there, weren't there? Yes, there. I mean, one of the most famous one is uh, is was called The Boys Standard. Um, which was one of the big ones, which I'm going to come on to as well in a minute. And they got their name because of the dreadful, scary Gothic stories mm-hmm. and the fact they cost a penny, so penny dreadfuls. But Mackie goes on to make a good point in the paper that I read, that because of the success of penny dreadful newspapers, the facts and exaggerated folklore around Spring Hill Jack can become intertwined. So what I've tried to do, it's really hard to separate the two out, but I'm going to start really try and focus on things that weren't featured or likely not influenced by Penny Dreadfuls, that they are more newspaper reports and more, let's say, genuine sightings. Before we get on to some of those early sightings, uh, let's look at how this phantom got the name spring Jack. I don't know about you, Ben, but when I first heard stories, I assumed that the spring heel jack bit was just because it managed to run off at high pace. Well, yeah, a big jump, didn't it? I didn't really realise that at first, but it is, like you say, a more literal interpretation of what the entity did. And in fact, he was early on, before he was named spring heel jack, he was known as the Leaping Terror. Oh, really? <laughs> I like the Leaping Terror. It's maybe not as catchy as spring Hill Jack. But... He, had a, uh, he had a brand's image change. Yeah, yeah. Got an, <laughs> got an agency in. Leaping Terror. <laughs> Sounds a bit like a lame superhero. I need to change it. <laughs> <laughs> got a new logo, new look. Yeah. He's all over TikTok. Yeah. Um, and you're right. He, he got his name because he tended to escape the scene of his crimes by either leaping vast walls or other obstacles. Uh, and many people said it was as if he had springs in his feet. Mm, yeah, yeah. Because I think, maybe you're coming on to it, but didn't he like famously leap over a wall or something to escape capture? Yes, he, yes. There, well, there are many accounts of, law, of wall leaping. Right. <laughs> <laughs> it was a thing for him. Um, <laughs> it was a thing. It was him. a thing. Well, once he'd gone for the leaping terror, it's like spring healed. I've really got to live up to this reputation. <laughs> now, the story of Spring Hill Jack really starts in the late, uh, late on in 1837, when a I quote ghost imp or devil. I've never quite got what a difference what an imp is. Is an imp a kind of lower class devil? Would you say? I well, yeah, I think. I I always think of an imp as like a small, like human-like entity. But yeah, imps are also associated with witches, aren't they? So yeah, yeah, maybe it is. Yeah, yeah, a low rent demon. A low rent demon. <laughs> I wouldn't say it to its face, but we're all right to do it. We'd well, have to pub. bend down. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so this ghost imp or devil was said to be in the shape initially of a large white bull. And it carried out a number of assaults, mainly against women, in barns in the area just outside London. Mm. The story was later published in the Morning Chronicle. (laughs) And we'll get on to this. This It's a bit of a theme of this episode. When I was putting it together, I I, I was scratching my head going, wow, this really tells us something about the attitude towards women 
at this time <laughs> in the in the in the mid and late 1800s really is it quite misogynistic oh it's very misogynistic but the story that was published in the morning chronicle said no respecting female has since left home after dark without a male companion Ooh, so maybe this is actually a morality tale. I did have a think about that. And I'll, again, I might touch on that a little bit later because there is something that just shocked me. Um, but let's, let's, let's look at some of these accounts because they do vary quite wildly. Uh, many said they were attacked by a large white animal like a bull or a bear. Others talked about being assaulted by a ghost in full shining armour. Gosh, or a black-cloaked fiend or devil. Now, due to the differences in these reports, other theories began to circulate that Spring Hill Jack might be multiple supernatural entities. So it was like some kind of phenomena that was going on in London. Mm. Theories that it was a group of pranksters, well-to-do gentlemen who were just trying to scare women, or a more outlandish one, that it actually, this being, was a shape-shifting entity. Right. Okay. A skinwalker sort of Kind of, yeah. Yeah, that could basically... I I guess the... what From what I read, it seems like it would change its shape in order to extract the maximum fear out of its victim. Mm -hmm, Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. In Encounters, people would describe Spring-Heeled Jack... Having uh, tearing the flesh, tearing their flesh with a monstrous iron claw. So uh, it's got an instrument, or its claw was like iron. Yeah, exactly. Either oh, both, 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 both reports. Many newspapers reported that some people were literally scared to death. That is typical from that Victorian era you had some stories like that in the day literally it seems like we were like those goats at that point <laughs> yeah, oh no yeah. look it's a it's a demon oh derek's dead yeah <laughs> he was scared to death <laughs> unbelievable but the one thing i guess that comes through in most of the accounts about spring jack and why he gets his name is this supernatural ability to leap into the air the entity would leap out of the shadows, attack its victim, and leap away at high speed, often clearing walls 10 feet or higher. Wow, that is quite high. That is high. You'd Putting have to have pretty concepts. springy feet for that. Yeah, I mean, I'm like 5'9", so it's like nearly twice the height of me. Yeah, yeah that's high. Yeah, yeah, almost, um, what, the height of a, a bungalow, let's say. <laughs> Single-storey building. <laughs> <laughs> That's the way we should measure things. Yeah, yeah. How many? How how did he go about a bungalow? Well, or two bungalows? It doesn't feel very scary. A though, retirement does it? bungalow. Yeah. <laughs> he could leap over retirement bungalows. Yeah. This is why he did the name change. <laughs> he was called Granny Annex Man for yeah, a while, yeah. but yeah. Well, one of the most famous encounters happened in October in 1837. And it involved a young woman named Mary Stevens, who'd been visiting relatives near Battersea Marshes in London and was walking home to Lavender Hill. It was a miserable night. Uh, not the not the visiting relatives, I meant the weather. <laughs> I thought I'd better clarify that. Oh, I had a miserable night, I just walked home. <laughs> the rain was drizzling and it was growing late. And so Mary decided to take a shortcut, climbing the steep, Pig Hill Path towards the crown of Lavender Hill. 
On her journey, Mary walked down a narrow, rather winding passage known as Cutthroat Lane. That's where I'd go. Yeah. And this location got its rather sinister nickname due to stories of people having their throat cuts by robbers in order to steal their gold. There is also another legend of this lane that it was the site where a scorned lover had had lured their unfaithful sweetheart to kill her and then took his own life over her body. But either way, it's called Cutthroat Lane. Just give it a miss, right? (laughs) Yeah, yeah. There's there's a lot of um, places like that around around here. Some of them are like named naughtily, you know, sort of like Gropers Lane and stuff like that. But there's there's one that I used to cut down at university called Very Dark Lane. And oh, it, it changed its name, I think, just to Dark Lane. But I, <laughs> I, again, it's like, what's it like down there? It's very dark. Well, that's what we'll call it. Yeah, I think there are a number of cutthroat somethings, like mm. Cutthroat Avenue and Cutthroat Lane in London. So um, I think I'll go with the you're likely to get mugged or robbed down there seems more of, more of a believable way. It's a bit of a mouthful. You're likely to get robbed, Lane. <laughs> I think I'll go about that way, yeah. Yeah, Cutthroat will do. Well, Mary did continue down Cutthroat Lane, and as she emerged onto Lavender Hill, her nerves got the better of her, and she began to run, her steps clattering ever faster as she neared the opening of the narrow lane. Beyond the turnstiles, bearing its mouth, the way was hidden by impenetrable blackness. Mary was just drawing level with it when a tall figure leapt out from the shadows, clearing the stile with a single bound. Before she could react, the figure reached her side, took her roughly in its arms, gripped her firmly and kissed her. Ew. Yeah. So does she describe what his face was like? She does a little bit of description. I couldn't find as much of a description as I wanted, to be honest. Um, She says the creature released its hold with a loud laugh and then, leaping extraordinary high, vanished into the night as mysteriously as it had come. Now, there there are witnesses to the aftermath of this. A group of men at the Falcon Inn, which was a short distance down the hill, came out to see what the commotion was and they discovered Mary in hysterics. I don't think that means laughing, does it? <laughs> yeah, no. <laughs> you should have seen him. Oh, it was so funny. Um, despite searching, they found no trace of the attacker and they took Mary to a master's house where they gathered in the kitchen to hear her strange story. So, no, apart from that description of the leaping, coming out, grabbing her, kissing her, there's no description of what he looked like as far as I could find from Mary. But we do, we have, I have got some descriptions later where there, there is more detail, especially about his face, which is interesting. What's really weird about this story is, I think it was even before it got publicised in the press, there was another bizarre incident a few nights later. It happened a short distance outside the modern-day boundary of Wandsworth Borough in Streatham High Road. Gosh, that's that's a yeah, really well-known yeah, location. South, South yeah. London yeah. location. As a carriage was rattling its way home from London, the horses were startled by something leaping across the road. 
The horses bolted and the carriage crashed. The coachman and footman were badly injured. The footman reported that some sort of huge creature, whether man or bird or beast, he could not say, had bounded from the shadows on one side of the road and leapt clean across the other side, where it vanished over the top of a high wall. Gosh, wow. So it's, yeah, sounds like exactly the same kind of entity that did the other. Now, did it, was it making a noise? It was, it was, it was just laughing or it was just... There was no, no, I think it was a pretty quick thing. They're just going along the road. Suddenly yeah. this thing leaps out. It's the facts. I don't know how wide, I'm sure Streatham High Road is not as wide as it is now, but still wide enough you would have thought to get two horse-drawn carriages yeah. down either side. This thing just leapt straight across the road without wow. touching and then disappeared off, to, off a high wall. Wow, wow. And so this is a couple of days after the incident with Mary down Cutthroat Lane not been reported in the press at this point so it's not somebody made I, I there was a bit in the back of my mind going was it a couple of coachmen who got a bit drunk <laughs> crashed the coach and said we've got to make up some story around yeah this. yeah um but they were both quite seriously injured so i thought that was quite credible that it happened so quickly after the first one and that it hadn't been publicized at that point injured because it upset the horses yeah the horses basically bolted and the, right. the carriage crashed right So there were numerous reports of encounters with this strange leaping beast over the next few months. And this is the bit I was referring to earlier. The Lord Mayor of London got dragged into the story. So this is uh, from a newspaper that I found from the time. Uh, So this is an article that was in the Morning Chronicle, published on the 9th of January 1838, in its police intelligence section. And it detailed a letter the Lord Mayor had received from a concerned resident. Uh, I do apologise in advance. We are going to have some flowery Victorian language. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, I'll uh, I'll get my uh, hat on ready for this. But I am going to read this article in full because it's fascinating on multiple levels. The article states, The Lord Mayor said that he had received a letter upon a subject the odd nature of which had induced him to withhold it from the public for some days, in the expectation that some statement might be made through the sources of indisputable authorities relating to the matter of which it treated, which I read as basically he'd held it back because he thought police or someone would make a statement, which they didn't. The following is the letter. So this is the letter that the Lord Mayor received from a concerned resident. To the Right Honourable Lord Mayor, My Lord, the writer presumes that your leadership will kindly overlook the liberty he has taken in addressing a few lines on a subject which, within the last few weeks, has caused much alarming sensation in the neighbouring villages within a three or four miles of London. It appears that some individuals of, as the writer believes, the higher ranks of life, have laid a wager wager with a mischievous and foolhardy companion, name and as yet unknown, that he durst not take upon himself the task of visiting many of the villages near London in three different disguises, (laughs) of a ghost, a bear 
and a devil. <laughs> Bear. And moreover, that he will not dare to enter gentleman's garden. So this is the wager. Somebody's been, yeah. either an entity or a human has been wagered that he would not dare to enter gentleman's gardens for the purpose of alarming the inmates of the house. The wager has, however, been accepted. And the unmanly villain has succeeded in depriving seven, seven ladies of their senses. <laughs> seven? At one house he rang the bell. And on the servants coming to the door, this worse brute stood in a non less dreadful figure than a spectre clad most perfectly. The consequence was the poor girl immediately swooned and has never from that moment been in her senses. But on seeing any man now screams out most violently, Take him away! <laughs> Swoons. People don't swoon anymore. No, there's no swooning. There are two ladies which your lordship will regret to hear, who have husbands and children and who are not expected to recover, but likely to become burdens upon their family. For fear that your lordship might imagine that the writer exaggerates, he will refrain from mentioning other cases, if anything, more melancholy than those he has already related. The affair has now been going on for some time and, strange to say, the papers are still silent on the subject. The writer is very unwilling to be unjust towards any man, but he has reason to believe that they have the whole history at their fingers' ends, but through interested motives are induced to remain silent. It's a bit of conspiracy theory yeah, going yeah. on. Yeah, yeah. It is, however, high time that such a detestable nuisance should be put to a stop. And the writer feels assured that your lordship, as the Chief Magistrate of London, will take great pleasure in exerting your power to bring the villain to justice. Hoping your lordship will pardon the liberty I've taken in writing, I remain your lordship's most humble servant, and he signs the letter, a resident of Peckham. So it sounds it sounds like he knows something. Yeah, yeah. I either he knows somebody who's been directly attacked or it's it's that because I wondered, I don't know for sure, I wondered if this rumour that it was someone of the aristocracy or a group of young aristocrats play, pranking and, you know, carrying out these things because he does he does kind of allude to that in the letter. So whether he knows something or not, but he obviously seems au fait with some of the cases that are going on and the general... It shows it was a big thing, that there are lots of reports at that time, at least. Yeah. But these things tend to... Um, they travel and um, people then start becoming paranoid, particularly then, and then losing their senses and swooning all over the shop. But it doesn't... It wouldn't explain how he could leap across a road. No. It, it, parts of this that letter reminded me of some of the hysteria that went around the ghost of Hammersmith. Yeah. Um, which we did in a, in a previous episode, which I won't go into again, but it did remind me of that. Now, so I understood that letter as a concerned resident of Peckham who might know something, expressing that they didn't necessarily believe that this thing was supernatural, that it could be some well-to-do gentleman playing a sick prank, and or something else, but either way, the Lord Mayor should put a stop to it. Yeah, yeah. Well, 
The Morning Chronicle from 1838 goes on to print the Lord Mayor's reaction to the letter. (laughs) Ben, can you guess what his response was? Um, uh, It's all gobbledygook and there's nothing I can do. It's a bit of that, but it this is where this is where rampant sexism does come into play. Ah, uh, oh, they were just silly girls. Well, the law I found the Lord Mayor's response shocking, uh, and I know we've said on the podcast before, different times, different times. The paper says the Lord Mayor, on reading the account, observed that as our friends on the other side of the Atlantic were in the habit of saying, it was extraordinary if true. Extraordinary, if true. In his opinion, it was calculated for the meridian of London, but if any trick had been practised by fools, he had no doubt that the vigilance of the police might depend it upon to prevent annoyance. This bit, here we go. It appeared to him that the letter, which was written in very beautiful hand, was the production of a lady who might have been terrified by some bugaboo into the mode of obtaining, Bugaboo? yeah, like a, I think it is a name for a spectre. Is it like yeah. the song? Yeah. Oh yeah, Destiny's Child. So a bugaboo, by dictionary definition, is an object of fear or alarm. A bogey, like a bogeyman. Oh, okay, right, right, right. Um. So yes, it appears in the letter was written by a very beautiful hand. Production of a young lady who might have been terrified by some bugaboo into this mode of obtaining retribution at the hands of the Lord Mayor. But as this is it, but as the terrible vision had not entered the city, the Lord Mayor's basically saying, I can't do anything about it, sorry. Ah, uh, not my jurisdiction. It gets worse. A gentleman stated to his Lordship that the servant girls about Kensington and Hammersmith and Ealing told dreadful stories of the ghost or devil, who on one occasion was said to have beaten a blacksmith and torn his flesh with an iron claw and in either to tear the clothes from the back of females. No one of these injured people has been known to tell the story. Perhaps they did not live to tell. I think that's probably a bit of sarcasm coming in. Yeah, he, he doesn't sound like he's got a huge amount of sympathy. The Lord Mayor believed that one of the seven ladies who had lost their seven senses was his correspondent. He hoped she would do him the favour of a call and he would have the opportunity of getting from her such a description of the demon and was ena- which would enable him to catch him in spite of the paid press and police. So, a- as you can probably tell, this was before the suffragette movement in the UK. Yeah, yeah. He's, he's basically... He's likening servant girls to, like, sort of um, hysterical eight-year-old girls who have been told a ghost story isn't he really yeah and it and it, it's funny because a lot of the writing and descriptions of it and that I, I guess i'm going back to one of those early quotes of no 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 i don't know if it was self-respected but no woman would go out without the accompaniment of a gentleman yeah, after dark yeah. did make me wonder if it was either not conscious necessarily but there was obviously some subconscious suppression suppression and there's also this kind of uh, almost like, well, if there's a man there, she's obviously not going to see anything because he'll be able to yeah. explain it. Although we do know from those accounts, plenty of men just saw a man in a white sheet and yeah. were unable to speak again for the rest of their yeah, lives. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
Uh, well, it, and it's it's. I think that's really interesting, and I think we've talked about on the podcast before how people who've had encounters which seem paranormal, it's really tough for them to be believed. But imagine being a woman in, you know, eighteen thirty eight who'd seen something like that, and you know, nobody's taking you seriously. Not just because you've seen something weird, but because you're a woman as well. It's just, it's unbelievable, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, it is. And it must be really very difficult to then report anything if people just poo-poo you. Yeah, yeah. And and actually, it's quite nasty the more you think about it. Because, uh, like, when you talk about him ripping the clothes off women, if this is somebody doing it as an in inverted commas a prank... This sounds like borderline rape and yeah. they, they're they just not going to have any way of defending themselves against the sort of the finger pointing of, oh, you're just in hysterics, which is awful. It's really awful. Yeah, but also, you know, on, on a wider point than that, it just creates that air of, you know, women shouldn't go out on their own and mm. shouldn't be out after dark and all that kind of stuff. So, yeah, suppression does come to mind. But it's interesting you you mentioned the prank thing because that theory did gain some credence in the press, uh, which I found uh, in an article from late dis well December from eighteen thirty seven in the Northampton Mercury, who reported that on the day before New Year's Eve eighteen thirty seven, residents of the neighbourhood of Lewisham described a figure disguised in a bearskin and wearing spring shoes who would jump to and fro oh. before foot passengers. So the bear, the bear costume comes out again, yeah. right? They and he's got spring shoes. Spring shoes. <laughs> it said, as part of a wager to appear as these freaks, it says, in nine different parishes. So this happened in nine different parishes over one night. This thing that was dressed up in a bearskin with spring shoes would just leap out on people in many areas of London on New Year's Eve. And actually, New Year's Eve, that date does kind of make you think, well, that sounds quite prankish, although mm. it could be a copycat we need to bear in mind mm. as well. Uh, according to the Northampton Mercury, the figure was now named Steel Jack, presumably from earlier sightings that he was seen wearing armour. And then on the 13th of January, 1838, an article carried the headline... Spring for Jack, and it was very soon afterwards, on the 22nd of February, that the press gave a name to their fears, Spring Healed Jack, which was reported first in the West Kent Guardian on the 13th of January 1838, and then in the Times on the 22nd of February 1838. So the only reason he's getting these names is because of newspaper copywriters? Yeah. Yeah. Okay, yeah, yeah. makes sense. Because and it, and it looks like the different, you know, Spring Four Jack, the Leaping that's Terror. That's a rubbish name. You know what I mean? They've just somebody's gone. Oh yeah, Spring Hill Jack. That's the one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It reminds me of the Beast of Bodmin Moor, which I think is a mirror headline. I think. Right, mm. right. Well, in late 1837 and early 1838, reports of Spring Hill Jack were coming in from all over London. I'll just go through a few of them. So, in Barnes, attacks were carried out by a large white bull. He appeared as a white bear in East Sheen. In Richmond, there are reports of females being frightened to death and children being torn to pieces 
by an unearthly visitation. Torn to pieces, actually killed. Well, that's the reports. I'll come on to that in a minute. In Ham and Petersham, Jack appeared as a devilish imp. An unearthly warrior clad in armour of polished brass with spring shoes and a large claw glove was reported in Hampton Wick and Hampton Court. In Bushy Park, Teddington, Twickenham, Whitton and Hounslow, he was seen leaping over high walls. Then, in January 1838, the West Kent Guardian reported, here we go, that 600 are nearly dead at the idea of it already, i.e. the idea of Jack. So it was reporting 600 nearly dead. I guess that's not dead, but... Hysteria that was taken hold. That's a lot of people. Yeah, yeah. I'm just trying to get my head around that. Do we have names of any of them? No. See, that's, yeah... Well, I'm going to move on to... Because I mentioned the Times earlier. So this had moved from local press. But in February of 1838, there was a story that appeared in the Times. I, I don't know the circulation of the Times, but if not, the biggest newspaper must have been one of the biggest yeah, newspapers. Totally, yeah. And the headline was, Outrage on a Young Lady. A complaint was put forward to the Lambeth Street office of the police by Mr John Allsop, a gentleman of considerable property, who worked in the Bank of England and who lived in an isolated cottage on Bear Bind Lane between the villages of Bow and Old Ford. This remote dwelling was thus an ideal spot for an attack. The report described how on the 20th of February Allsop's 18-year-old daughter Jane heard a violent ringing at the gate. When she inquired what the matter was and requested that he would not ring so loud, the figure told Jane that he was a policeman and said, For God's sake, bring me a light. We have caught Springhill Jack and he's here in the lane. So I think I've heard this account before. So uh, how does it go on? This is exciting because he gets away, doesn't he? Obviously he gets yeah, away. Yeah, he gets away. And there is a description of him in this as well. Is this the one where they describe him as spitting fire and covered in oil skin? Yes, it's really right. bizarre. So when Jane returned with a candle, the policeman threw off his cloak. Then applying the lighted candle to his breast presented a most hideous and frightful appearance and vomited forth a quantity of blue and white flames from his mouth. And his eyes resembled red balls of fire. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, this is, we get some of the um, the artwork from this description. Yes, that I've seen. Yeah, 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 yeah. A lot of the Penny Dreadful artwork was influenced by this. And then it says, from the ghastly glance with her fright enabled her to get of his person, she observed that he wore a large helmet, and his dress, which appeared to fit him very tight, seemed to her resemble white oil skin. Yeah, yeah. This couldn't sound more alieny if it tried. Yeah. She tried to run, but he caught her by the dress and neck and then forced her head under his arm and scratched at her dress with claws, which she was certain were of some metallic substance. Jane screamed and wrenched herself away from him. She fled to the safety of her house, but Jack caught her again. This time he lashed at her dress and neck and tore her combs and a substantial amount of hair from her head before dragging her down the stone steps and away from the house, with considerable violence. 
Jane's younger sister, Mary, was frozen with fear, but her elder sister, Mrs Susan Harrison, managed to pull Jane free from Jack's claws and back into the safety of the house. Even then, Jack persisted at knocking at the door until the woman called for the police. Mr Allsop and his wife had been seriously ill with a rheumatic affection over several weeks, but he managed to get out of bed to assist his daughter, who had all appearances received the most personal, serious violence. Allsop also noted that there was an accomplice to this assault, as the first attacker did not stop to pick up his cloak as he fled across the fields, and therefore there must have been someone else to retrieve it. He offered 10 guineas as a reward for the capture of this criminal. So... Remember, this was in the Times newspaper headline. Yeah, because this is actually assault. Yeah. Um... And the description comes from a policeman, which is, I guess, what's been given the most credence. And I think people have tried to explain it. I think I years ago I read somebody was trying to explain it away as being a, f- a fire eater from a circus. Yeah, which your brain does go to that. It would explain yeah. kind of blue and yellow flames. But that isn't how fire eaters work. No. And, and the explanation that... Um, it was the candle that ignited it. You don't go around with a mouthful of paraffin on the off chance that <laughs> someone's going to put a candle near yeah, you. Yeah. No, no. Um, and his enormous helmet, if you'll pardon the pun, that's yeah. a very peculiar sort and, of and the meta- element. There's this metallic theme that comes yeah. through as well and the claws. Yeah, so it, it, I guess the debate is, is that um, a costume that someone's made? Yes. Or, or is it reflective of something deeper? Yeah, and I, I th- there seems to be much weight put on the fact that he'd left his cloak behind and that somebody else had picked it up. But I was thinking about that. It really depends on the time, you know, how long that cloak was out there because somebody might have just walked past and gone, that's a nice cloak, I'm nicking it, right? Yeah, yeah. Um. Well, now we've talked about this Victorian obsession with ghost stories, paranormal tales, gothic gore. Uh, most recently, we talked about it in the Halloween special. We did a couple of Victorian ghost stories. Mm. And publishers capitalised on this obsession over spring Jack in serialised literature, as we've mentioned, known as Penny Dreadfuls. And... So these stories, so so Spring Hill Jack just became an obsession of the Penny Dreadfuls because I guess it shop, it shipped big copy and there was enough hysteria around London and the surrounding area. I didn't realise, at their height, it is estimated that there were over 100 publishers of Penny Dreadfuls. Wow, wow. With sales of over 1 million copies a week. Gosh, oh, it was good times if you were a cartoonist or... Yeah, yeah, or could just... Just turn out a story. Yeah. What fun. So I guess it's no surprise that Penny Dreadfuls went crazy for this story of Spring Hill Jack. I mean, it's got that, hasn't it? It's got that... I mean, it would work today. It's got that mix of true crime, ghost stories, gothic horror, mystery. Yeah. You know, multiple descriptions. But as soon as the Penny Dreadfuls started publishing spring Jack tales, it does become harder to distinguish the genuine sightings and attacks, you know, 
between those and the serialised fiction, basically. So, and, and certainly in the academic paper I read, that was a big part of it, how, you know, these initial reports, so I've tried to stick to the ones that have got newspaper references rather than uh, that could just come from Penny Dreadfuls, but it does get really blurry after this date. There's um, There's a thing which I only heard the phrase last week, yellow journalism. Okay, no, I've not heard of that. So that is pretty much either writing a fake story or embellishing a story that somebody else would back you up on. Right. So, for example, um, there is a story that, uh, and this is this is actually the story I was reading about, but there was... Um, a case where this woman had was said to have singing feet. Bear with me. But okay. she, <laughs> she would, her feet would predict the future by singing songs. Right. And all oh, the Fox sisters missed a trick there, didn't they? <laughs> and they, um, uh, this was re- this was reported by a doctor. Now the journalist didn't look into why the doctor would say this. They just took it on face value, and then to make it come alive they came up with some jazz songs that her feet might sing. (laughs) And this became then reported that her feet were singing jazz songs. But it's yellow journalism because the journalist was like, slow news day, I'll just write what that doctor said and a bit more. The whole story is bunkum. But it's interesting that perhaps, it seems unlikely for the Times, but if they've got it from another credible source, if he's or she, the journalist, has got this from somewhere else and there's a policeman involved. They go, well, if the policeman said this, then I should write it up. Mm. But the embellishment comes mm. from the journalist going, oh, another 17 lines to fill. Mm-hmm. So I don't and, know. And, and I guess there's a lot of these examples of the attacks of Spring Hill Jack, which are coming secondhand, not necessarily direct from the witnesses, which is always difficult. And then if you've got... You know, we we have seen it with the episodes we've done on mass hysteria. Once it travels, all people start to believe all kinds of things and see all kinds of things, right? Absolutely they do, yeah. Well, certainly stories about Jack's antics spread outside of London over the years. Uh, from its origins in London in the late 1830s, there seemed to be more, let's say, more credible accounts were reported in Aldershot in Hampshire in 1877, so, you know, a few years later, and in Liverpool in 1904. But by the early 1900s, generally the hysteria around Spring Hill Jack had died out, really. So there is no conclusion of who it is, but there are a number of theories, which we've talked about some of them, and let's summarise those and... There are a couple of others to throw into the mix. So there's this theory. It's either an aristocrat or a group of wealthy young men playing a sick prank on people or pranks on people. Um, And I guess like the Jack the Ripper case, there are some names that were put forward to who the culprit might be. There was a a lord who I think had been cautioned before for jumping out and trying to scare women. (laughs) Nothing changes. Um, <clears throat> we've got this shape-shifting cryptid or entity that seemed to favour the shape of a bull or bear for some reason. We've got the fire-breathing devil in a cloak. There was also, which I found very interesting, 
and something we've talked about before in terms of cryptids, there was a suggestion that Spring-Heeled Jack could have been a kangaroo that had <laughs> escaped from a zoo or a circus. Oh, come on. <laughs> that was my first reaction. But the, the theory goes that actually somebody who was a circus owner who had this kangaroo might be dressing it up and basically setting it off to watch people get scared or for a laugh. <clears throat> it is more out there. I got it. But I, I thought about the wallaby population in the UK. But people know what kangaroos. Okay, it's dressed up. But even so, they can't <laughs> breathe flames. They can't jump no. ten feet. And they're probably not going to come and give you a kiss, are they? Uh no. Um, unless it's a very horny kangaroo. Yeah. Well, you mentioned earlier this idea that it could be an alien creature. Mm. And that was a theory uh, that gained some credence in the 1961 May-June edition of Flying Saucer Review. It was in an article by Jay Viner, who put forward the theory that spring Jack was an alien who'd been marooned on Earth. In the article, which was titled The Mystery of spring Jack, Viner suggests that Jack was an alien creature whose attacks were a desperate attempt by the extraterrestrial to find a safe place to hide or that he was looking for a human who could help him find his flying saucer. <laughs> <laughs> it was just misunderstood. Uh, how do I uh, interact with these people? <laughs> well, probably best if I jump out of them. Breathe fire. Uh, breathe fire and uh, rip their clothes and then they'll help me find my UFO. Oh, maybe I'm looking a bit weird. I better shift into a bull. I've got to say, though, I did find a critique of the piece in Fly Saucer Review where the, the person who did the critique said, the author presented a somewhat eccentric and muddled summary of the legend, <laughs> which lacks a single primary reference to his source material. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, one thing that it does sort of remind me of is... Um, and we've spoken about it before, the Solway Firth. Yes. Uh, Solway Firth, yes, yeah, Solway Firth Spaceman. So, yes, the photo, the photograph that, that was, was debunked in the end, wasn't it? Yeah, it was his wife. But for years, people said it looked like a spaceman because it sort of does. Yeah. And then other people were, like, coming up with their own sightings. And if you remember, ah. there was even... Um, the uh, my favourite uh, the sweary men in black, who um, <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> who got who got peed off when he didn't he didn't exactly, have as much information exactly. as they expected. Yeah. <laughs> they ran away swearing yeah. at him, and you know all you need is one thing to coalesce around, yeah. and then everything else starts sort of everything else is explained in that way. I do think it is very likely that there probably were weird gentlemen's clubs doing stuff. Yeah. But I still think that the th- that idea of it breathing flames and leaping walls, I think it's really hard to say that that is a gentleman's club. Yeah. You can't leap a wall with springy shoes. Yeah. Like, even the best springy shoes, we're not in some yeah. sort of d- steampunk... Yeah cartoony thing you can't do it you can't yeah even those parkourers can leap down it's pretty it's pretty hard to leap up 10 feet isn't it oh i don't i don't know enough about it but 
and also I think the <laughs> the credit. <laughs> I was a bill for parkouring, um, but when you, I I thought the account of the uh, coach driver, the horse and carriage driver and uh, footman were was really interesting because you can really visualise that the horses kind of pounding down Streatham High Road and mm. this thing just jumping clean across the road and then over the top of a wall and then crashing. Like I said, unless it's some kind of elaborate excuse for them just crashing their coach, it's that's quite a, an interesting encounter. No, it definitely is. Um, and, and I think the, the timeline between the first and the last reports, that seems to suggest it, it is more than like a little group of sort mm. of young men having a laugh because it, it goes over many years. It does, although that's where the petty dreadful influence comes right, in. Right, I see. From I my see. from my reading of I got to a point where it was like late eighteen thirty seven to mid eighteen thirty eight and from then on in it gets a bit more cloudy. It gets a bit more cloudy and you kind of feel all right, this is where the height, let's put it that way, of spring Jack activity uh-huh. was. It kind uh-huh. of, I would say, a six to eight month period. And then it gets blurred by the Penny Dreadfuls. And then there are huge gaps, you know, 20, 30, 40, 50 years between the other sightings that happen. Right, right, right. I see, I see. In which case that could be imposters or... Yeah, copycats. Again, the, yeah. the alien coming going, can you please help me find my UFO? <laughs> I, just, I still can't see it. I just got him. He kind of got, he's got his key in his hand. He's tick, tick. No, when, <laughs> when did I leave it? Oh, it was that car park in Peckham. <laughs> <laughs> it's so... it. <laughs> it's an intriguing mystery, though. It's really enigmatic. It's got so many variations to the entity itself in appearance but the consistent factors to me seem to be the springiness and this claw type thing this kind of metallic style claw seems to be consistent whether it's a devilish imp or a kind of shape-shifting bull or whatever it is they seem quite consistent um yeah it's the leaping I think probably out of all of it that's just so weird and like I said I think the core of it happens over a period of months and then god nobody knows what the answer to this mystery was but it did captivate you know to make the times on multiple occasions it was a thing Mm, mm. I think it's the kissing that makes me think it's not an alien yeah, that does sound kind of sick, pranky, doesn't it? You can, yeah. But yes, yeah. Although we have discovered in previous episodes that aliens are very much up for day a lot more than snogging. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think the the thing that gave that Mary, uh, the Cutthroat Lane incident, some credibility to me was, you know, before it had been reported in the press, you had that incident with the coachman a couple of days later with this huge leaping creature, mm, mm. which actually from a timeline, that's interesting. Well, I guess we shall never know, but 
two things spring to mind. One, they should have been an episode of Mythbusters where they tried to make spring heel Jack shoes. That's a really great idea, yeah. Um, although I think you could probably end up doing yourself severe injury. Yeah. Um, and the other thing is, I wonder whether, because, uh, you know, this comes from, uh, as you said, those those dark, mysterious, murky, semi-rural lanes of 1830s London, which have that sort of ghostly feel to them anyway. I wonder whether there are any other cultures that have a spring Jack sighting, but we just don't know about it because it's oh, not called spring Jack. Yeah, yeah. Almost like the old hag in terms of sleep paralysis. Right, yeah. yeah. That, that'd be... Yeah, we should dig into that. Or if anyone out there listening knows of a, a different cultural reference in your country to something akin to spring Hill Jack, that, to let us know. I think in India, there is some kind of spectral monkey. Right. I believe that that's a, a thing just off the top of my head. And it leaps from rooftop to rooftop, causing mm. injury and fear to people, which is kind of similar, but um, it's definitely mo- sort of monkey-shaped. Mm. Um and is I think considered a supernatural entity, like perhaps a, crypt- a crypto cryptid or uh, something demon esque. But you know, it's similar but not the same. Uh, I want to know about things that breathe fire. Yeah, and actually thinking about it, I when you go through all the stories, I think the thing that does hit me about Spring Hill Jack in comparison to something like that is, you know, it's wearing a cloak or mm. it's not necessarily turning into a bear but it's wearing something that looks like a bear its claws are described more as a metallic glove rather than part of its body and even you know springed loaded shoes rather than necessarily the ability to just leap high things so it does it's not like it's purely this entity like a leaping huge monkey in a in that kind of traditional cryptid sense it does does feel a bit more like batman a bit more enhanced rather than mm, natural supernatural mm. ability whichever way you look at it it's a very good point because it's wearing an enhanced version of the fashion at the time yeah 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 uh well, we'll never know. If anybody else has got theories out there, do let us know at TQM Podcast on Facebook or Twitter. But it, I, you know, it's like you said, around that time when, and so, you know, the guy in his paper described gas lit streets, fog, <laughs> darkness, narrow lanes. It, yeah. You can see why that Victorian. That Victorian thing is just, it's so spooky. It is. I'd love to have walked around those streets, actually. Not to get attacked, but just because of the atmosphere must have been so intense at times. Yeah. Because you're walking from, these are villages, you're walking rural lanes back into gaslit areas and back out again. Yeah, yeah. And the change in temperature and um, and the environment around there must have been invigorating. And you can imagine why, you know, people would tell stories when they're doing that just to scare each other. Yeah. But, yeah, interesting. Well... Um, Be- before we go, there was one other thing I wanted to mention, which uh, just a little aside. So a while ago, we did an episode on Are We Living in a Virtual 
simulation. Mm-hmm. And we covered another academic paper, which I won't go into the detail, listen to the episode, it is quite a good one, of um, the rationale for why we are living in a simulation. And if we are, it is a historical simulation for educational purposes, right? Yes. So, So I'm reading the other day, Meta, you know, the new name for Facebook, Mm. The Metaverse, their virtual reality hub, I don't know what you call it, um, they are working on and are going to launch a virtual historic computer simulation, which is exactly what this guy who wrote the uh, paper predicted would be the start of, yes, we are living in a simulation, because if we are going to create one, then we're already in one, seems to be the summary. So meta, Metaverse are doing that, which is weird. So I've been programmed by Mark Zuckerberg. Yeah, there's a weird Great. thought. Well, on on that note, review, like, subscribe, or leave something on our wall. Yeah, or or follow <laughs> or yes, yeah, or follow us on Facebook. You might as well. You're gonna you're gonna be forced to do it anyway. You because, might as yeah, well. Yeah. I'm actually thinking of opening a. Um, oh God, what's the Op- the Twitter Meg- Me- Megalodon Megalodon what? no I don't know this oh yeah there's another sort of Twitter thing you can do oh, really? Stephen Fry's left Twitter I think he's on Megalodon oh right I kind of heard that yes yeah Yeah. I'm going to see if I can work out how to make that work okay. and um, then we can all meet on Megalodon Matt it is Megalodon isn't it I don't know I, don't, I know he'd left but I didn't know where he was going oh, I think it's Megalodon okay. if I've got that wrong I apologies and I will uh find out just assume that you're speaking to um a drunk grandpa for a minute and i'll uh, i'll come back with the right name so basically in the last four minutes we've just screwed any attempt of us getting publicity on facebook and twitter uh yes mastodon mastodon not megalodon the megalodon was a dinosaur sounds like i think the mastodon was an ancient elephant wasn't it right okay that's better <laughs> Anyway, Mastodon. I'm going to try and get on to Mastodon. Well, look, we will uh, be here next week with more weirdness on the quantum mechanics as long as Mark Zuckerberg or Elon Musk hasn't deleted us from the programme. And uh, we'll be back with more quantum mechanic weirdness next week. (laughs) See you then. See you then. Bye. Bye. Quantum mechanics.